0: So I wanna turn our attention today to one of life's deeper questions and share what scripture has to say about it. No matter who you are, what culture you're born into, whether you're wealthy or poor, young or old, each of us has wondered at some point, how might I live a better life? Whether out of dissatisfaction, curiosity, ambition, or boredom. This question haunts us and makes us wonder, is this all there is? Or can it be better? You see, we all want the better life. And because of this, answers abound in our world between world religions, famous actors, music artists, the self-help section at Barnes & Nobles, and even that one neighbor that you try to avoid because they have an opinion to share about everything. Yeah, answers, they're everywhere. But if you're smart, you actually know that much of it is bad advice commenting on the subject of bad advice. And someone who lived through terribly violent wars and who wrote about many horrendous men in his day was the ancient Greek poet Sophocles. And he said that no enemy is worse than bad advice. Our psalm today cries out in agreement. Those who follow bad advice in search of a better life pay a grave cost. Our psalm Not only warns us though, it informs us. And so it opens the entire book of the Psalms with, get this, a captivating vision of not just a better life, but the better life. And there's no middle ground in this Psalm. There's no other alternative. There's no other option for those seeking an answer to our deeper question. Today's Psalm is black and white. And because of this, we actually might have the temptation, me included, to write it off as rather simple. I could preach something of a sermon that says, don't be bad, be good. God blesses the good, he curses the bad. Then for the next 30 minutes or so, we discuss, uh, oh, Christians are good too, so be a good Christian. But God has put on my heart this morning something different. Um, And the difference is this. Uh, This Psalm not only tells us how we ought to live, it tells us how we are made to live. And the result is a a deep, get this, a deep delight for those who follow God's design. So make no mistake, the message of Psalm 1 is far more richer and far more inviting for everybody in the room today, whether you're... losing myself here, whether you are a new believer, whether you are a longtime saint, whether you're on the fence or maybe someone who's strayed back and forth from time to time, maybe straying right now, this message calls us to the better life that Jesus has for us. John 10.10 says, I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. This we all need and more of. And the good news is that this abundant life is available to this morning to all. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're gonna divide our time between three questions. They're rather simple. One, where is abundant life found? And two, what is abundant life like? And three, what is the alternative? One, where is the abundant life found? Two, what is abundant life like? And three, what is the alternative? So for our first question today, where is abundant life found? Look again at verse one with me. I'll read it for us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, verse one It introduces its vision of the abundant life by first wiping away anything that could obscure our view of God's design. First, it tells us what this life is not. It's not found in the allure or the enticement of the ungodly. You'll notice three actions stand out in this verse, walking, standing, and sitting. Together, and really in this order, they represent a process of being lured off the righteous path. It's usually not all at once. People don't go from being nice, faithful people to waking up one day and suddenly betraying trust, destroying relationships, and just obliterating their own reputation out of nowhere. See, in walking, verse one describes a sort of, we might call it window shopping, seeing what else is out there in the marketplace of ideas and temptations and alternative identities. And we see what would it look like to maybe incorporate that for, some, uh, for ourselves? In seeking, we begin to peek at the other life and think, what can I take home? What can I add to God's plan as a supplement? See, eventually, we're no longer walking, though, but we are lured in and now standing, now comfortable being around the ungodly and indulging with them. See, by now, you've given in to the alternatives, a little here and a little there. And really, when we veer from the path and stand in the way of sinners, we are now actively adding to God's plan and probably also, most likely, shedding other parts of God's plan to make room. See, this is standing, but then it leads eventually to sitting. And sitting is the final destination and it's not just a hardness of heart against God, although it is, but it also is a malicious rejection of what is godly. Our text says here, we sit with scoffers, people who pridefully ridicule righteousness. They claim to be above or past or beyond or more educated than the people of God. And they let other people know it. And together, in group form, they evangelize ungodliness. Ungodliness and make themselves proud enemies of God's people. See, many of us know someone who has veered from the path and moved from walking to standing and some from standing to sitting. And here's the deal, these are friends, these are family. And let's be transparent, it's us. We too know the lure of bad advice. So when we slip into window shopping, And when we stand with sinners, or even if we've joined with the scoffers, is there no hope for us? Have we gone too far? The answer is no, and it's a great no to hear. Because the history of Israel, if you look throughout all the Old Testament, is a history of a people of God who constantly wrestle with him. And that God proves himself to be a God, of course, correction. He is slow to anger, he says. He's in the business of getting people back on the path to a better way. And in Jesus's own words, mind you, to a crowd full of people wanting to kill him, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls." And so after reminding us abundant life isn't found in the allure of the ungodly, our passage unveils where it is actually found. So let's listen closely. And the answer, if you're closely listening, might actually kind of surprise you. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. There's our answer. The law? What? which law? Are we talking 10 commandments? Is this the Mosaic law? Is it all 613 commandments? That's what I have to be meditating on? Is it even the command to not boil a goat in its mother's milk? I mean, I don't even have a goat. (laughs) No, see, the word for law here is Torah, and it's used in its most general sense. Uh, It's not as specific as the Mosaic law or something that David would have, but all of God's instruction. And for the New Testament believer, that's us, God's instruction is found in the completed word of God, the Bible, and from it flows all the counsel that we receive from the Holy Spirit, which always agrees with the written word. So, this, Grace Church, is our answer of where abundant life is found. It is found in God's instruction. So, before we jump to our next question, though, I want to make this crystal clear, because some people come really, really close to finding abundant life but they fall short of that delight that David or whoever the psalmist is, we don't actually kind of know whoever this is, um, they fall short of that delight that they speak of. This is because we look at and see what people of abundance are doing and we copy it. Um, Or we look at people in Scripture who seem to be living an abundant blessed life by God and we copy that, but we might actually miss one crucial element. which leaves us lacking and then looks us to kind of looking to supplement and window shop. So hear me say this, merely doing good things, great things, or even amazing things will not automatically give you that better life that you seek. The missing element in these good deeds is motive and specifically deeds done in love. 1 Corinthians 13 clarifies Love for God and his people is how we find that delight of which our psalm speaks. For it's only through the law, or sorry, it's only through love that the law becomes something that we appreciate, something that we see as an ally, something as an aid to that better life. This is why David refers to the law as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The law shows us where and how to channel this love that we receive from God and feel towards him and his people. In love, the law liberates us for abundant life. So let's now take a look with that clarified and see what this life is like. Question two, our second question for today, what is abundant life like? Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers so this this is the captivating vision of abundant life it's the one who delights in God's instruction who's motivated solely by love it's a person who is like a tree the tree that we actually see here is a fruit-bearing tree it's it's one that's tapped into that never-ending supply of nourishment and the tree doesn't have to worry of where its water is going to come from It's going to make it from season to season because it is by that flowing stream. And it just simply grows and it grows through any circumstance. You see here at Grace Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus by his grace and for his glory. It's actually our mission statement. And whether or not you have already trusted in Christ as your Lord and savior, it's our desire to see you connected to God, to see you also thriving and bearing fruit and to help you prosper in your next stage of growth as someone who's following Jesus. But this only begins if you can admit your need for God. See, he is our life source, our soul life source. And I'll be blunt, there's no hope of a better life and really eternal life than if you're not connected. Perhaps inspired by this psalm, there's actually another similar vision of a tree on this subject. And it compares in Jeremiah a person who rejects the Lord's help with one who accepts it. This is Jeremiah 17, five through eight. If you're turning there, I'll give you a second. Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, five through eight. Look with me here. Verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed, Is the man, not blessed, but cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water who sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and, it is, and, it, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The difference, it's clear. You and I were designed by God to be dependent on him to be connected to him. Like trees, we can't trust in other trees for the better life that we seek. No matter how well it appears that they're growing out there, trees can't simply just vicariously be nourished. Trees don't work that way. A tree can't also just muscle its way through a tough season on its own. It again has to be connected and listen, firmly rooted in the life-giving soil. If not, It can't be expected to grow. It can't be expected to get bigger than a shrub here, says Jeremiah, or produce fruit from season to season. This is not how trees are designed. Um, Now, we though are designed for connection. So where are you planted? What is giving you life? Have you looked past God's offer? Have you supplemented your, your efforts to find a better life with other things? Maybe you're looking for a diversity of resources among the human experience, if you wanna say it fancy like that. Um, But let me plead with you, go all in on God. Go all in on him. God's blessing is reserved for those who trust in him alone. Jesus says, I am not a way, a truth, a life, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And later, Paul, a man who left the heights of power and reputation and gave everything to follow Jesus. Did it work out for him? Well, he quotes from Isaiah saying, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. And another Psalm, Psalm 37, five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Do you believe that promise? If you go all in on God, you will not be left hanging. And if you wanna do this today, if if this is the day that you go, okay, I am ready to make that step, or I'm not sure if I have, but I, I need to make sure that I have, come talk to me or someone else today. We want to help you get connected to eternal life and start living the abundant life that our Lord and Savior has for us. There's no need to wait. Now, the vision of the tree that we see in both passages is profound. And for the Christian who's weathered many seasons already, it calls us to invest deeply in the word of God, perhaps more than we're comfortable or have before. And it also calls us to invest in the ministry of his people. See, uh, we know the difference that God's word has made, especially those of us um, longer in the tooth, I think is a phrase that Jeff would say. Um, so, but there's also some, sometimes where we as people, whether we're older or younger, we feel spiritually underwatered, maybe spiritually malnourished. It might seem like it's been uh, forever since our last harvest. See, with the change of seasons, maybe we're not feeling the same or not feeling like we hoped it would Uh, But the truth of this Psalm and its parallel in Jeremiah is that we must send our roots deeper and know that we will bear fruit in our season. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch what our Psalm says? It doesn't say bear fruit in every single season there is. It says the tree will bear fruit in its season, its allotted season. This means that not every season is really there for you to feel productive. And actually, I don't know maybe you do, of a plant that bears fruit year-round. Most trees, from my understanding, don't. And even if you're with a green thumb in the room, you know what plant that is that bears fruit always. Um, we're not that kind of plant. So get that clear. Um, now, we could draw a million applications just from this verse. I've, I've heard a sermon before preached just on this verse alone. But I wanna turn our attention just to a few gentle questions for our souls this morning, especially for those who feel spiritually underwatered. One is, are you focused on the fruit of your life, the growth that you want, more than your connection with the life giver? If so, I'm afraid you've put the cart before the horse. Secondly, have you, have you supplemented your life source in the Father, maybe with some other bad advice in the world, and it's come up short and it's left you anemic? Uh, Remember, God, he wants all of your heart. Three, are you also maybe simultaneously planted in a number of Christian communities? And there's a lot of great ones out there, Um, but you're lacking maybe real connection, commitment. Maybe you're lacking accountability. It might be time, consider and pray about this, to invest in one space, to go deeper with God's people in one place. Or are you serving and you're using your gifts to help someone else grow and you considered volunteering? Uh, These questions I ask now, not to shame or guilt anyone, and I'm not paid by boosting our volunteer numbers, don't get any ideas, um, but um, I ask these because I too have felt spiritually malnourished. And the, the quickest way out of it is to dive deeper into God's grace, his word, and see it modeled alongside other people Again, much more can be said. This is a complex issue. It's one worth bearing out in good, godly conversation. But let's look at question three. What is the alternative? Verse four the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff. The wind drives away. See, this is the alternative to abundant life. Again, this psalm is black and white. Uh, you're either a tree or chaff. For the city folk in the room, chaff is actually a word used to describe the husk that grows around the grain on the stock. I know this, city folk, because I double-checked this for Google on us. Um, so yeah, I got this right. But the grain, it grows, it has that protective husk, but towards the time of harvest, life dries up from that husk and it becomes chaff. And there, when it's time for harvest, they cut down the stalks, they take them to what's called a threshing floor, fancy farming term, and they put it down in a very windy place and they toss it up in the air, they might drop it, they might beat the stalks. Whatever they do, by this point, the husk is almost like tissue paper inconsistency, enough for the wind just to obliterate, break it apart, And then what you get is lots of good grain on the ground that you sweep up for bread or whatever your use is. And the chaff, well, you don't have to worry about it. You don't see it again. It's that almost ephemeral that just floats away. So back to our psalm, the time of this comparison, I wanna turn our attention to. This is not the time of judgment just yet, but the wicked are like chaff before judgment. This is the best that they can hope for and be and become. You see, at some point, the promises of ungodliness will fail to pan out. The consequences, they catch up with you. And before you know it, you're left dry and a season will come. You'll have no promise of life from there forward and be separated from life. So you might say, Ethan, hold on, it says the wicked here. I don't know if you caught that in your study, um, but I, I, I'm not wicked. And the people I know that aren't godly, you know, aren't wicked, come on. Well, actually the Hebrew word for wicked here is the word rasha. And though our wicked uh, English word, uh, it, uh, it's reserved usually for the worst kinds of people, serial killers, terrorists, that sort of group. Uh, actually, rasha is something broader. It's really anybody who rejects God's law, who turns away God's offer of life. Um, This whole group, all of the ungodly, again, anyone rejecting God, they, they are like chaff. And they're easily blown about and blown apart by the circumstances of life, even before judgment. Now, this is the alternative again to abundant life. No uh, nowhere close to the promise and the vision we see of the tree, but it's actually not the end of the story. Verse 5 and 6 look here with me. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the wicked, and, but the way of the wicked will perish. A couple observations here. So the fate of the wicked matches the fate of the chaff. It is something not connected to Christ, the source of all that is good. What hope can you expect there to be apart from God? And this becomes painfully clear at judgment. Two, and the Psalms are actually kind of sneaky and very clever in how they're arranged. You can find a a nugget of wisdom if you read really closely. Here's one right here is that so far in our Psalm, the um, the righteous have been used in the singular form. It's just one person. The wicked, though, the ungodly, it's been plural all the way through up until now. And if you're reading through, identifying, praying through this, you too feel almost the loneliness it, that righteous is, sorry, that righteousness is. Um, it can be, it can feel like as everyone else is up to no good making other decisions and you alone or just trying to do the right thing. But until verse five, it's here we are reminded that the righteous see clearly that they are not alone anymore. At judgment, they will never be alone anymore. Um, amen. Verse three, or sorry, third observation, verse six here. It actually says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, when I first read this, I kind of thought, this has been a great psalm so far, but it kind of seems kind of like an anticlimactic ending. Um, we, yeah, we know the Lord knows the righteous; He's God; He knows everything. Um, how is this supposed to relate to what comes before? It actually becomes a lot clearer when you realize that this word "know" here is a particular Hebrew word, "yada," which is an intimate, relational knowing. This is the sense um, of knowing something. Um, personally, knowing something with active involvement and competence. So after being married six years, I've gained a special familiarity with my wife that I've gotten way better at knowing more and more things about her and her personality, what gifts she likes, sense of humor, favorite way to relax. If someone is with me and we're talking to them and they raise a topic, immediately, I kind of almost know what she's thinking. Whether she's going to share that one story, hopefully not that one other story, um, but but also like if she's like we we got to change the topic. This is not something that I really enjoy. We need to get out of here. I, I just kind of know this in in the moment, in the instant. I've developed this over you know six years or so. Um, so this is a knowing. This yada is one that's developed over time. And what's really neat is that you get better at this. But sometimes you realize, oh, I'm not as good at it as I thought. Pregnancy hormones right now, they're, they're definitely um, reminding me that I have much more to know and learn. <laughs> so I'm playing catch-up, but God is never, God never plays catch-up in his knowing of us, in his care of us. He's never surprised. He's never thought, oh, I didn't account for this. He, is, he has complete competence in how he cares for us and complete knowledge. This is the kind of knowing that the Lord has for the righteous from birth to judgment. No surprises in between. Um, A beautiful, beautiful truth, but for the wicked, not so. So whether you are tree or chaff, judgment is coming. This is the harsh reality. See, there are many promises to a better life, uh, but there's only two destinations Again, many advice, um, many ways of living your life, many better ways that um, are advertised, but only two destinations. As a preacher of God's whole counsel of God's word, I I have to talk clearly about judgment. And I I promise not to belabor this point, um, but there are a few indisputable facts that we will all know and see one day that are already revealed to us in Scripture See, at the end of our life, everyone has to give an account to God personally, in person, as to what they've done, everything. No one gets out of this. Two, God's response is black and white. It's either eternal life or eternal damnation. Three, all ungodliness has to be paid for. It must be atoned. God is a holy God. To be in his presence requires a clean slate to be sinless. Uh, Romans 6:23 says that all sin, too is also punished by death, removal from God. And, and th- Romans 3:23 tells us the magnitude of who all sins. It's everybody. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. And finally, how thorough is judgment? No, ungodliness survives. So these are the simple facts. They're hard facts. But depending on if you're tree or chaff, this is good news or bad news. For trees, the good news of um, is that all ungodliness done by the believer is paid for by Christ's death on the cross through faith. They are incorporated into Christ. Incorporation, it's a big word. Um, it's kind of hard to wrap our brains around it. Paul uses the phrase in Christ all the time. And that's almost too short. It doesn't clarify what exactly... We mean unless we really, really look at it. Um, a helpful example that I've once heard is that, um, consider a stained glass window. Now the window alone is a beautiful picture of multicolored glass. There's actually a picture itself de- depicted on the window, though it's, it's actually transparent and you can still see through it, light still shines through it, shedding beautiful colors on what's behind it. Now at judgment, God will look straight at the believer. But what he sees is Christ who stands in front of them. Like the window, he covers them in the light of his righteousness. The believer's already made clean. He's already forgiven. And he's now clearly a part of God's beautiful masterpiece decorated by Christ and Christ alone, found to be in Christ. So after judgment, what is left is the completed work of Christ. And now all evil will be done away with. No more pain, no more suffering, no more oppression, nothing. And I repeat, nothing will cast a shadow on God's goodness again. Yeah, amen. But only those who trust in Christ will see judgment as good news. For the rasha, the chaff, judgment is bad news. Those who rejected God and did not accept p- payment for sin and his forgiveness, those who chose not to link themselves with Christ as their sole life source and who sought a better life elsewhere, they will be like chaff at harvest, removed and scattered to oblivion. When many of us hear this, we wonder, surely, surely there's some people maybe outside of Christ, you know, who did enough to warrant some some sort of exception. Um, Perhaps there's other passages, Ethan, that they're not not so bleak, um, so black and white. Um, Maybe I've missed something, well, here's the deal. I've looked, I've looked and looked again and again. You you won't find those passages. Other good men, um, the better men have looked and looked for these passages, they are not there. Scripture is extremely clear and it's unified on what judgment is and what constitutes it. No one makes it into heaven by merit. No one gets an exception. It's only through the work of Christ and his faithfulness. So those not connected to him like a tree by a stream will not stand in judgment. But I I wanna close this morning actually with one Point about this. And it's actually for both Christians and non-Christians in the room, or maybe those who consider them somewhere between. Um, see, sometimes the preaching of judgment, it comes from some sort of moral superiority, as if Christians are somehow better than those who seek abundant life elsewhere. Hear me very clearly, we're not. We're not better at all, and in any sense, we don't even become better after we accept Christ and start doing things for Him. There's no sort of moral credit that then starts to build. You know, we have no basis for judgment of our own account. And if you were told this, if you thought this, if you if you taught this, this is this is not correct. Um, all the credit, and listen closely. If you're half listening, you you might think something's up, Uh, but all credit that we gather in our life, all the good works, all the wisdom, everything that we do in love for Christ, all of that is not of our own um, will, our own work, our own credit. Romans 5 says, it is God who pours love into our hearts. We don't generate this love ourselves. And further, it says, we who, like the rest of the world, were once enemies of God, have become reconciled, not by works, but by Christ. Again, nothing of our own merit. So even if one of us goes out, accepts Christ, and saves a million people, they preach and they're just become one of the evangelists, the, the, one of the evangelists of like our generation, a Billy Graham of sorts, um, even that person has no right to boast over an unbeliever and say, yeah, yeah, I've done more than you. I'm better than you. No, because they have been used by Christ. They are a vessel. They're honored by God, empowered by God and get to enjoy what that's actually like. But again, it's not of their own merit. They have a privilege and enjoy that with the Lord being connected to him and used to him at a profound capacity. So, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. Um, but before I pray, I want to let you know that I asked Moy to play a song that we tend to play often. Um, and before someone accuses Moy of overplaying something, it's I'll take the blame this morning. But the lyrics speak and meditate on this reality that all we have is Christ. Um, and it's far too relevant to skip after today's message. I ask you to proclaim these words from within. Um, think about them all. Every verse is relevant to the truth that we bring nothing of our own merit to the day of judgment, only the righteousness of Christ. Amen. God Almighty, We are so, so grateful to drink from your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that its work may do a great work in us, for us, and for your kingdom and your glory. We ask, Lord, that we who feel pulled towards the vision of a better life um, find that this this, this week lived out in ourselves. Um, Help us to respond in the way that you wish, Father, and help us to delight in love of what you have for us. We love you, Lord. May we love you more in your name.